There are certain eerie images which define the Cold War. The flare of a searchlight at the Berlin Wall. The weird white triangle of the Vulcan bomber in the sky. A missile poised in its silo, sniffing at the air, dying to be released. Another famous image of the Cold War is the so-called golf balls of filing dales. These big white spheres used to sit high on the North Yorkshire moors, and they were the heart of Britain's early warning system. If the siren had ever gone off, it would have been because the golf balls up on the moors had detected an incoming Soviet attack. The four-minute warning came from Filingdales, and from there it went out across the land, to the BBC, to nuclear bunkers and police stations across the country, triggering sirens on top of hospitals, schools, fire stations, on the roof of factories, and the sirens on top of a pole at the end of your street. The whole country would suddenly light up with the terrible wail of that siren, telling us we had four minutes left. And the whole terrible process started back on the moor with those weird-looking golf balls. Now, what do we mean by golf balls? What was that weird structure up on the Yorkshire Moors? Most listeners will be familiar with the so-called golf balls, but if not, do a Google image search and you will see the soft rolling moorland of North Yorkshire with three big white balls plonked on the grass. They're no longer there, they've been replaced now by an ugly big pyramid structure. But during the Cold War, yes, there were three huge radars on the site, which watched the skies for an incoming nuclear attack. And these radars were protected by radomes, nicknamed the golf balls. And these were really just a big giant umbrella to keep the weather off the delicate radar structure. By enclosing it in a huge big sphere, the radome kept it free from rain and ice and wind, You could also say the golf ball kept it safe from any prying Soviet eyes, from any suspicious-looking tourists who were having a picnic up on the Yorkshire moors and having a nip of vodka with their sandwiches. (laughs) So the Filingdale's golf balls watched the skies for a Soviet nuclear attack. And that's why, of course, you find it on high ground on the east coast of Britain, looking out to where the commies once dwelt. Along with similar sites in Greenland and Alaska, it formed part of the Ballistic Missile Early Warning System, or BMUs for short, 
Here's how the warning would get from the Finningdale's golf balls to your street. The golf balls would detect an incoming missile. Or they'd detect waves and waves of missiles. The Soviets wouldn't have launched an attack with just one or two little guys. If you're going to launch a first strike at NATO, you'd better be sure to do it hard and to do it properly. So Filing Dales would, hopefully, pick up the incoming attack. They would see the missiles coming up and over the horizon. See my recent episode, The Russian Woodpecker, if you want to have a quick look at how the Soviets worked with their radar. So the golf balls spot the incoming attack and they would send this warning to RAF Strike Command. And if they say, yep, it's genuine and we're retaliating, having received the proper authority, of course, from the Prime Minister, they then cascade that warning down throughout their warning network, which means a signal goes to the BBC transmitters and also to the desk of the BBC technical operations manager, who has a red telephone on his desk, which never rings, never, ever, ever, except now, when the four-minute warning is being delivered. And that phone call tells him that he must cut into all BBC programming, radio and TV, to deliver the four-minute warning. More of that in my earlier episode called The Last Word, The BBC and Nuclear War. Speaking of the BBC, if we were in a state of readiness for war at this point, then the TV and radio would already be playing civil defence information. From the 1980s onwards, that would mean the dreaded Protect and Survive films. So the technical operations manager would break in to whatever was playing, whether it was Protect and Survive or just a normal boring day with, I don't know, Songs of Praise or EastEnders or Going for Gold. But of course, not everyone is sitting nicely in front of the TV or radio to receive the warning. And that's why we had sirens out in the streets and on the roofs of buildings to alert everyone everywhere. And so the warning wouldn't just be sent to the BBC, it would also be sent to 250 major police stations across Britain who had a strange device in the basement called a carrier control point. This is a big clumsy looking thing with telephone handsets and lots of lights and switches on it. And it was used to tell the duty policeman that this is it, sound the four minute warning. I'll put a photo of one of these things on my Twitter and Facebook. I saw one at an ROC post in Largs and was allowed to (laughs) play with it, (laughs) lift the dreaded handset and push some buttons. So the policeman would get the call at his carrier control point and he would lift one of the handsets and use it to dial in to the various monitoring posts on his watch to deliver the warning. The warning would be attack warning red. If you heard that coming down the line, it meant four minute warning, this is it, sound the alarm. A quiet good. So the policeman would use one of the handsets to deliver that message to the ROC monitoring posts that he was hooked up to. 
but he could also use some of the buttons and switches on his carrier control point to turn on hundreds of local sirens on his patch. Those ones which are up on roofs and on poles, they can be switched on remotely by the policeman via his carrier control point. There are still some sirens out there in the wild. Of course, the siren network was disconnected after the Cold War, and most of them have been removed, but some do remain. Either they've been kept deliberately and now act as flood warnings. Here is a YouTube clip of recent floods in Hebden Bridge, where they had to sound the sirens. So a few of them have been retained as flood warnings, but a lot of them just seem to have been forgotten and just left where they are. There's one, for example, on a railway bridge outside Waterloo. I took a photo of it, uh, like a real nerd. So I'll put that on my social media if you want to see it. And it just sits there high up on the bridge, forgotten, I suppose. He's obviously not acting as a flood warning in Waterloo in central London. So I assume he's just forgotten as many of them are, just scattered randomly across Britain. And there's something very eerie about these left-behind sirens, as though they're the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. Before we go on to look more at Filingdales, let's have one quick word about the infamous four-minute warning. Duncan Campbell, in his book Warplan UK, says... It is not a four-minute warning. That's how it's labelled in the in the popular imagination in the discourse about nuclear warning. But he says if we're going to be precise about it, it is not, or it would not have been a four-minute warning. And he quotes the Home Office's training manual for scientific advisors, saying, "No particular warning time can be guaranteed, but it is expected that the warning will be given." not less than three minutes before an attack. So in that Home Office publication, there is no mention of a four-minute warning, simply that it's expected that the warning will be given not less than three minutes before an attack. Campbell also says, and we've talked about this many times in the podcast, that it's wildly unlikely that the four-minute warning is the only warning you will receive. A bolt from the blue attack was, of course, a possibility, but it was unlikely. A far more plausible scenario is that we would slip into nuclear war following a period of international tension, or perhaps even a conventional war which eventually went nuclear. It is unlikely that you'd just hear the siren blaring from nowhere. A completely surprise attack. And that, of course, is the only thing which makes government uh, civil defence plans, which we discuss, of course, in this podcast, it's the only thing which makes them remotely plausible, remotely useful. The idea that you would have weeks and weeks, maybe even months of warning, months of warning to put all your plans into place. Otherwise, if all you ever had was a four-minute warning, then of course you can't plan for anything. So there would probably have been a period of tension or indeed a period of conventional warfare before the four-minute warning, before the flash. The scenario we see in threads, 
the nuclear war film, the greatest nuclear war film, is far more plausible. We see tension building over the weeks and months. We see people reacting to news reports, stockpiling food, trying to leave the cities, making feeble attempts to construct an inner refuge. And then the nuclear strike. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. So yes, likely that you'd have days, weeks, even months of warning. But we could go to the opposite extreme and have literally zero warning. Not even that paltry four minutes. A submarine-launched missile, if he had managed to sneak in and fire from the west coast, wouldn't be seen by the golf balls, of course, and it would be delivered in seconds, perhaps. So with a submarine-launched missile from the west coast, there'd be probably no warning at all. And the first thing you knew, and maybe the last, would be that tremendous white flash. And that brings me to Audrey. Who on earth is Audrey? Audrey is a big, clunky machine... She looks, uh, to me, like a prototype of some unwieldy old 1940s refrigerator. Big clumsy Audrey sat in nuclear bunkers across Britain. And her job was to tell the bunker staff that, yes, a nuclear explosion has occurred in the vicinity. So in circumstances uh, like a sneaky submarine launch perhaps, where there was no warning and so no official nationwide confirmation that this is it, Audrey could tell you that somewhere nearby, a nuke or two has gone off. Audrey stands for Atomic Weapons Detection, Recognition and Estimation of Yield. So if the nuclear attack has been so sudden and so immense that it came without warning and perhaps took out filing deals, then you could consult your big Audrey machine. There were 12 of these scattered across Britain in ROC control bunkers. And she gave confirmation that, yes, a nuclear explosion has occurred nearby, and yes, as her name suggests, she could estimate the yield of the thing. So consider Audrey your backup if the Ruskies nuke the golf balls. Which, of course, they certainly would have intended to, Filing deals would have been a whopping great target for any enemy attack. If things went according to plan in a nuclear war, I imagine filing deals would see the missiles flying, send out the warning, and then, having done their duty, vanish in a flash. Any second or third wave of missiles would, of course, hit without warning, because our warning system has been disabled has been vaporised. But I don't think the population would need much of a warning of any supplementary attacks. I think we'd already be a bit on edge following the first. So let's take a closer look at filing deals. It became operational in 1963 and it was the Americans who built and installed all the gear. And the media reports of the time were filled with awe and wonder. Remember, this was the early 60s, the the time when Harold Wilson was talking of the white heat of technology. 
Interestingly, he gave that speech at the Labour Party conference in Scarborough, just a few minutes away from Filingdale's. Listen to this Pathy News report from the time and you can hear the sense of wonder. Feel that white heat. Here's evidence we really are moving into the space age. But we're not driving to a lunar outpost. Those weird domes, capped like snowy plum puddings, are the eyes and ears of the West's defence. It's not the moon, but a remote Yorkshire moor we're visiting. An out-of-the-way spot, summer or winter. We've come to RAF Filingdales, where even the CO, Group Captain Wright, has to go through an identity check before he can start his day's work. Turning inside each of the three great radomes, a giant radar scanner keeps watch on the 3,000 miles to the north and east of Britain. This is the ballistic missile early warning system, B-MUSE for short. The radomes that look so out of this world are really a sophisticated form of umbrella designed to give all-weather protection for the day and night vigil. When you enter the radome, you're in air pressure, just one pound per square foot above outside conditions. This keeps out rain and dirt from the delicate electronic instruments. This is where that famous minimum four-minute warning could come from. No missile could escape this RAF manned listening device. And the power that comes through the aerial is so great that only authorised personnel are allowed into this inner sanctum of Britain's defences. But although Filingdales represented modern, white-hot Britain, it was still dogged by strikes and industrial disputes in its construction. White-hot Britain couldn't quite shake off old Britain with its old industrial practices and disputes. There was a long-running dispute about Spider-Men, which, yes, I had to Google, uh, find out that they are steel erectors. But there was a long-running dispute about Spider-Men, who were the steel erectors. They were members of the Constructional Engineering Union, and 110 Spider-Men went on strike in 1961. And 65 men were later sacked for as the Times said, not working hard enough. And an ugly dispute arose when five white men were dismissed and replaced with what the newspapers of the time called coloured men. Filingdale said that these coloured men were local and were willing to live on the site, which made getting to work in the frozen, wintry Yorkshire moors a lot easier. But the men who were sacked to make room for these local men were white. And so the dispute took on accusations of racism. But if lots of industrial scraps and strikes and disputes were occurring on the ground, the media were just enraptured by the futuristic golf balls high on the moor. Consider this report from the Daily Herald in 1963, where the reporter was allowed inside to see how Dales worked. I'll quote to you from the newspaper archive. The headline is Golf Balls on the Watch. Four vital minutes. That is the minimum warning time Britain now gets if Russia launches a rocket attack. For yesterday, three missile detecting radar beams were switched on at Filingdales to complete a 3,000 mile warning fence from Alaska to Britain. 
In the secret operations room of the £43 million base on the moors, I watched coded letters and numbers spin endlessly in an illuminated glass wall panel called the fruit machine. If a certain combination falls into the frame, it means a rocket invasion has been unleashed against Britain and North America. I saw the secret figures spell out the jackpot message, but it was only a dummy run. One of three mock raids staged each day to keep the technicians on their toes. The vital information is fed to the fruit machine from three giant radar dishes housed in 100 feet high protective shells which look like huge golf balls. These scanners can pick out an object the size of a door over Siberia, 3,000 miles away and the detection centre can plot a missile's point of impact to within one square mile. So that even though we have the white heat of technology on the moor, we're still likening it to ordinary workaday objects like fruit machines and golf balls. Filingdales are still there, still active. But as I said earlier, the golf balls have been replaced with a big clunky pyramid, which just isn't as photogenic. And of course, they're no longer looking out for Soviet missiles. Instead, today's crew work in tracking orbiting objects, Uh, they're part of the US Space Surveillance Network, and they also track spy satellites. Foreign spy satellites, obviously. Maybe one day, someone will (laughs) hurl nuclear missiles at us, and Filingdales will still have to spot and plot them and warn us. The only certainty is that they won't be Soviet. So I hope you've enjoyed our look at the weird golf balls up on the moors. Let me say hello and welcome to all new subscribers who found me after reading the review of the podcast in the week. I saw a huge jump in my downloads on Saturday, I didn't know what had prompted that, but one of my patrons, Chickle Chives, sent me a message to tell me that Atomic Hobo had been reviewed in the week. So hello to all new listeners and thank you for joining me. Remember there's a huge back catalogue for you to dip into. I've been doing this podcast for over two years now, so there's lots of juicy nuclear horror there for you. My name is Julie McDowell, and I'm also writing a book on how we prepared for nuclear war. So you can keep up with the podcast and all my nuclear research by following me on Twitter. I'm at Julie A. McDowell, or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And remember, you can support me with a donation each month. Please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you can donate as much or as little as you like. I gained some new patrons this week, so let me give a shout out to Laura Pritchard. And let me also say thank you to existing patrons Brian Garland, David Glaves, Andy Peck and Peter Wilson. So thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.